Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. This is a league of A's and B's. It's green and red and gold and black and blue. This is a league with two official languages and many unofficial languages. It's East versus West, wheat versus iron, love versus hate. This is a league where superstars are extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's a league of ice, of fog, of mud, and wind. And for one Sunday in November, it's the nation's glue. This is a league as diverse as a country, a league of Jacksons, Kwongs, Johnsons, Moscas, O'Shea's, and Haji Razulis. This is his league, his league, her league, their league, and their league. It's my league, and it's your league. This is our league. And welcome to the 55-yard line here with Scott and Greg, and we are here today with Dana Guster of the Historically Speaking Podcast here on the Sports History Network. Dana is a former sports writer and sports broadcaster and joins us today from Atlanta to talk about African-Americans who have played in the Canadian Football League. Dana, welcome. Thank you for joining us, and it's great to be able to reciprocate after you had me on your show. I think it was, what, last month or if his time gone by so quick, I think it was a it was few weeks month. ago. Um, yeah, I, I'm glad to, I'm glad to be here, man. And um, I was uh, looking for I've been looking forward to this for a while, talking to both of you guys. And I'm late to the party when it comes to the Canadian Football League, but uh, listen to you show and everything else. Uh, I'm glad I'm here, and then y'all making me the DJ at uh, the new of the party that I've been <laughs> so graciously invited to. So um, I'm, I'm enjoying it, and I love y'all show, and um, I'm glad to be here. We are very glad to have you for sure. And I, I know we were talking off the air about, um, you know, when you started researching some of this, going down some rabbit holes and uh, it is really fun. I mean, you start looking at the history of this league and, uh, you know, some of the, the groundbreaking things that it's done and, it, and it's pretty impressive. I mean, the Canadian Football League really has a rich history. Um, it was um, I got in- introduced to it when I was like eight years old, you know, and I didn't even know there was another league in Canada. Here I am. I'm 48. So we're talking about 40 years ago that I discovered it on ESPN by a friend of mine. Um, I had told um, Greg this the last time when we had talked on my show that the first time I had ever seen a Canadian Football League game, again, I was eight, and my friend had told me about it. And 
I thought it was the weirdest thing I had ever seen, but I was instantly drawn to because, of course, it's football. And, you know, growing up like you and I grew up and growing up in the South, you know, football is a religion here. And whether it's foot, whether it's Canadian or high school, whatever, if it's football, I'm watching it. And even if it was in like August that I saw this game and I just thought it was the weirdest thing ever, but I was instantly drawn to it. So that was one of the things that got me into, into um, very interested in, in the CFL. And I came again, came late to the party because I kind of like throughout high school and everything else, I really didn't have a lot of access to it growing up in, you know, in Louisiana. But as I've gotten older and thanks to the internet and other things uh, and knowing people in Canada, they kind of opened my eyes to the Canadian Football League and I was like instantaneously drawn to a, a second time. So that's why I say I'm late to the party, but hey, I'm here. Well, you know, you're not quite late to the party because, you know, just talking about how you kind of came to know the CFL, it's kind of the same for me. And I know for Scott, too. I mean, let's face it. We grew up in the United States of America where we didn't have access, unless you lived in Detroit or along the border, you didn't have access to the CBC feed back in the day when, you know, the league was on the CBC. Now, obviously, in the 21st century, we've got the magic of ESPN Plus and the Internet to help us along. So, and but yeah, like you, you know, once I was able to see the games, I you know, even though I dove into the history as much as I could, you know, say at the library, for the CFL, the internet has opened up, I think, a lot of our eyes. And I know a lot of people out there, <clears throat> you know, when it comes to, you know, CFL players and specifically the impact the CFL has had um, on social justice issues, including bringing in African-Americans to play key positions that unfortunately they were not, you know, were not allowed to play here in the United States. And, um, and so that's, you know, um, there's a lot of great players out there and we'll just start with Warren Moon and work our way from there. Um, yeah. And um, so, you know, tell us in terms of, you know, you, you know, you, you know a lot more about on this subject than, than you, than probably Scott and I do. So where do we start? Where did the, who were some of the first African-Americans to play in the CFL that, people here in the United States should really get to know. Now, let me tell you, um, the color barrier in the CFL was actually broken one year before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947 in Major League Baseball. Um, Herb uh, Trawick, who is a name that is well known throughout the CFL, Herb Trawick was a, played for the uh, Montreal Alouettes in, uh, in 1946, he joined them as an offensive and defensive lineman because he played both ways and which wasn't, you know, uncommon back at that time. Yet, as with everything going that back that far, there has been some discrepancy on whether he was actually the first. There was a guy that played for Saskatchewan, supposedly. Well, no one knows if he really played or not. A uh, guy by the, which has the coolest nickname I've ever heard, um, Robert Stonewall Jackson. I imagine this: Stonewall Jackson, a black guy, but you know has the same name as a favorite Confederate general. That's kind of ironic, but that's either that's a ma that. that's a major trolling right there. <laughs> <laughs> he was in a team photo of the Rough Riders in 1930, but is unclear whether he even played or not. 
So there's some discrepancy about whether he was the very first player or whether it was Herb Trawick. But Herb Trawick went to Kentucky State. Uh, he played in the CFL for roughly 10 years. And, um, but he was one of the first players of note. And it was very interesting that he played in Montreal because that was a very, that, because Montreal was the city that Jackie Robinson played minor league baseball with the Royals. So they've already had, and so to boost the, I guess the gate receipts and the popularity of the Alouettes, you know, with, you know, black people who was living in Montreal, they decided to sign Trawick and he was an immediate star for that team in their late 1940s. Yeah, wasn't that part of the ownership group in Montreal? Wasn't that one of the reasons they signed him because of the popularity of, of Robinson playing with a minor league baseball team? They thought, well, you know, maybe this could also work in football as well. I mean, it's yeah, that's sort of exactly a, the reason why they signed him um, because they was because uh, Montreal was a major hub of African uh, of, of pl- black people who lived in Canada was a major hub at that time period, especially in, in Eastern Canada. Uh, more. Um, more broadly, um, there was a large uh, black population, you know, during that time, and um, and they wanted to capitalize off of Jackie Robinson's um, his popularity in Montreal and throughout all of Quebec, and he and signing Trey was definitely a shot in the arm for that franchise, as far as the popularity of that team with black people living in Montreal and living in Quebec um, broadly. And with Montreal, too, you know, Montreal is all French. So the French have always been a little bit more ahead of the curve when it comes to um, issues of color. For instance, um, um, I apologize. The name is um, she was a singer in the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s. And the name is escaping me now. Um, I know who you're talking about. Um, (laughs) Josephine Baker. Yeah. Josephine Baker. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that probably is part of the reason why, you know, again, Jackie Robinson up there. But, yeah, Canada's always been very, you know, when it comes to issues of color, at least in my experience and from what everything I've read, Canada's always been ahead of the curve. Um, Up there, you know, and again, we have prejudice everywhere, but up there it just doesn't seem there is that prejudice that African-Americans obviously experience here in the United States, especially down south. And um, in your research and everything, what were some of the themes that kind of stood out when you were looking at looking backwards and seeing who'd played there? What were well? Go, well, go when ahead. When it came down to that, um, I tell you, I, going down, like I said, I went down a rabbit hole on yeah. this, and one of the things that I had noticed was the fact that the CFL was way more welcoming of black players, regardless of position, regardless of anything was more welcoming to black players than the NFL seemed to be at the time. Um, for example, that was this, I guess you could say it was unwritten rule that I had read once where it was basically said that you, you never have an odd number of black players on a team in the NFL. You would only have, you would have like two, four, maybe six in some cases, but you would never have three, four, you know, like three, five or seven. And the reason why, because you have an odd number is, you know, you have, you have to have, you know, black players staying together in the same room or whatever. So they, so that was like, 
something that was kind of frowned upon in the, in the NFL. But in the CFL, it was way more open, way more welcoming, way more open. It didn't matter where you came from, what color you were, as long as you could play, that's what mattered, especially in the 40s and 50s, and more so than they did in the NFL. Um, they were way more welcoming to African-Americans, more so than the NFL was. That's so interesting you mentioned that because I didn't realize that about the NFL, but it, but it does make perfect sense. I mean, you look at, at the segregated areas, you know, if you had Afri- African-American players who, you know, whether they were going to dine together or room together or whatever, I never thought of that. That's, a, that's an amazing stat you, you got there. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, and that was the way it was for in the you know when, you know back in the days when you know when African Americans first started playing in the National Football League in the late '40s, early '50s, you would never have an odd number of black players on a team. You know, you would have always have an even number. You know, so they could run together and whatever have you. And uh, but the CFL wasn't like that at all, and they were some of the most famous players in the 40s and 50s enjoy I mean played in the NFL but went to the and went to the CFL and they felt it was almost like playing in a totally different world for them and uh, just reading some of the stories and everything from different players that I've read you know they, they said that the CFL was way more welcoming and way more accommodating and the fans were didn't really matter where you came from or who you were or whatever they just as long as you performed on the field that's what all that mattered to them right and who are some of the early players that people would recognize? Now, I'm going to give you one name. Okay. Now, I said that um, I love nicknames. And I think he has the coolest, one of the coolest football nicknames I have ever heard, especially for a receiver. And this guy by the name of Ezra Anderson, also known as Sugarfoot Anderson. Yep. It's, that is like the coolest nickname I have ever heard for That's a football That's better player, than Billy White Shoes Johnson. <laughs> You know, he played at Kentucky State, and he played receiver, and he's also defensive back. You know, played in the late 40s, early 50s for Calgary. And he had 116 receptions in his career, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was a different brand of football, even though there was, there, there was more passing back then than the NFL did. It was, you know, everybody knows CFL is more of a passing league because of the rules and everything. But his best season was in 1950, when he had 46 receptions, which is unbelievable an amount of receptions for 673 yards. And having 46 catches in 1950 is, you know, if you put it up against the stats at the time on both leagues, that's a lot of catches, you know. And it was a different type of game then and everything. But uh, Sugarfoot, I love that nickname. And uh, he was one of the really first great players. Uh, another great player, and actually the first African American was Bernie Custis, and he played for Hamilton, played for the, played for the Tiger Cats, and he was the first, you know, one of the first, the first player. And very interesting note about Bernie Custis is that there's a, a secondary school or high school, whichever you, you know they call it different things. There's a high school that's right next door to Tim Horton Stadium that's named after Bernie Custis, which I think was really cool. You know, and um, I, like I said in, in, in a show that, I, that Greg and I were on, um, I have, you know, friends who live in Canada who did like my family. And um, they went to Hamilton. They live in Hamilton. They live right around the corner from uh, 
Old Ivor Wynn Stadium, which is now Tim Horton Stadium now. And um, she passed me, you know, one of my friends, she passed me right in front of that school and she told me about that. And I was like, wow, you know, and, uh, and there's this part of a little bit of civic pride in that, you know, like, you know, Hamilton was the site of the first black player in the history of the CFL. And there's a point of pride of that in that in that city. And I thought that was so amazing, especially being someone that's African-American from the South and just to see that kind of civic pride, which which I thought was just very refreshing to me. Oh, absolutely. I always think of uh, I think George Reed was born in Mississippi, but, you know, became a naturalized citizen. And then, you know, when I. See, I'm an old guy. I'm 60. And I was exposed to the CFL in the mid 70s, which was right at the end of Reed's career. But I mean, good grief. You know, this guy had over 16,000 rushing yards and 134 touchdowns, ends up becoming a naturalized citizen and becomes, you know, just a, a huge part of of Canadian culture, you know, beyond what he did as a football player. So he's he's one of those guys that's always fascinated me, you know, just just his overall story. Well, George Reed, I mean, that was another guy that I ran across that I hadn't really heard of until I did start doing my research. And if you were to put his stats, his rushing stats, alongside the NFL rushing stats, do you know that he would have been the third leading rusher in NFL history? Really? Well, Thirdly, he would have been behind Emmitt Smith and Walter Payton. He had more rushing yards than Jim Brown when he retired. Wow. I did not know that. You know, and I thought that was so amazing of a guy that he played his whole career in Saskatchewan. Nice. And he was just amazing. What I mean, he was six foot, you know, six foot two oh five, I think is his 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 measurements were, but he was just so amazing, such of an amazing run. I did some did I actually looked up some film footage of him and um he was nice. He was nice. Right. You know, I mean he had, well, he, he kinda reminded you looking at it, he kinda reminded you of Maybe, maybe like the Walter Payton, you know, yeah. maybe a little bit taller version of Walter Payton, you know, he wasn't overly big, but he wasn't small either. He was just an average size running back, but he had unbelievable balance and speed, you know, he could run over you if he needed to. He had that type of power, but he was more, he, but he was more of a speed back. And he was just such an amazing player. And I had never heard of him until I started doing this research. And this is one of the things I love about this is that, you know, you start going down and you start learning new things and stuff like that. And then you become more and more attached to the subject matter like I am with, attached to the CFL. And which is something that I did not expect doing this, but um, is one of the great surprises of, of doing what we do. Yeah, and that's, and that's yeah, we're, I'm the same way. And I know, I know Scott is too. And, you know, to put that, you know, that that running, that, that rushing career in perspective, you know, for those listening here living in the States, you have to keep in mind, it's a three down game up there. It's right. 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 And it's that extra downs. down makes a huge difference. So to have those numbers just tells you kind of the impact player he 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 was much like Andrew Harris today that plays for the Blue Bombers. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the Blue Bombers are the, the one exception in that league right now. They're, they've got – well, they right now they've got two backs, and they are a power run team. They're just as dangerous on the run as they are with the pass. And that's something that a lot of people from, from the United States don't realize. It's three downs. The field's bigger. So, and then the, the defensive line is one yard off the ball instead of being on the ball. 
And it's a totally different game, and it, it just kind of lends itself to being more of a passing league. Yeah. And guys like George Reed and guys like Cookie Gilchrist. And guys, oh, I love Cookie. You love know, and guy, Cookie. And other guy like Mike Pringle. Yeah. They ran the ball. You know, another great, another guy with a great nickname was, was Michael Pinball Clemens. You know, yep. those guys yep. were, you know, just, you know, used, turned a – a league that's primarily known for passing turn that into a turn that into a running league where became they became started as runners you know in a league that was totally designed and lend itself for passing absolutely and- i mean to me in the canadian league if you can become a superstar as as you just said Dana, if you can become a superstar as a running back you're something special just just for the reason you said because in a three down game there's a sense of urgency every down. You know, you don't get, like in the American game, you don't get the first down to kind of feel out what the defense is doing. Every single down has to matter, you know? And if right. you're going to and if you're gonna run, you're going to pass to set up the run. Yeah. Yep. Which was an old, um, as you could tell, you know, those who are listening, I'm wearing a L.A. Chargers hat, and I've char- been a Chargers fan since I was like eight, nine years old. And Sid Gilman used to say – that anybody, <clears throat> anybody that says that you have to run to set up the pass is full of crap. <laughs> <laughs> you got to pass to set up the run, okay? And that is gospel truth in Canada. It may not be that way in the, in, in the American game, but in, in the Canadian game, you have to run to set up the pass. And those guys that I just mentioned, you know, were just outstanding runners who basically turn that kind of theory on his head, but just because of their talent, right? just because of their own natural running talent. Yeah. You know, and then also translates over to the quarterback position too, where, you know, I'll use last night's game. Um, you know, last night, Vernon Adams jr. He's a, you know, watching him play, he's the best quarterback in the CFL. If you ask me, because he's very much in that Tracy ham mode where it's a dual threat. I know in my simulation CFL league, I love giving the ball to Tracy Hamp because, I, you know, I have Pringle, Mike Pringle in the backfield. Unfortunately, Mike Pringle on paper is not as good as a Mike Pringle in, in, in real life, just the way the <laughs> dice rolls go. But when it comes to Tracy Ham, boom, takes off. So, um, yeah, CFL quarterbacks, you have to – CFL players have to be very versatile. And, you know, if you're a running back, you've got to be a threat coming out of that backfield too because – Again, that extra down just makes such a huge difference. You know, you mentioned Tracy Ham. Tracy Ham was one of the first players that I really was, I was kind of like his John the Baptist when I was in high school and in college, because I started watching, you know, whenever I could get to CFL, living in Louisiana. Right. You know, the, the Argos would be playing and Tracy Ham would be on the team. And, and I would be I was like his John the Baptist kind of speaking because he was, you know, drafted by the Rams, but he didn't play for the Rams at all. He went straight to, you know, <clears throat> went straight to the CFL and two time Grey Cup champ. Um, 1995 Grey Cup most valuable player, 1989 CFL most outstanding player in his, in his third season, I think it was second or third year. And he was like in that mode of a, you know, smallish running quarterback, like a Lamar Jackson type of guy, you know, but he was unbelievably fast and unbelievably quick, but he had an, a rifle for an arm and he was just the world first dual threat quarterback 
in either well, you know, he was you know, at the same time around the Cunningham with the Eagles, but in Canada, he was such of a valuable weapon because of the exactly what we were talking about, the urgency on every play to get the 10 yards, to get the first down, because you don't have that one down to play with. You know, you got to go right then, right then and there to get the first down because you only got two tries before you punt. Right. You know, so Tracy Ham was just such of an unbelievable player, you know, during that time period and, and, and throughout all of AF, and CFL history. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, he is considered, you know, he quarterbacked what is considered by many to be the greatest CFL team ever assembled. Right. Now, whether that was because it was all Americans or the ratio, who knows, but that was, that's, that's the one team people still talk reverently of up there in Canada as being one of the greatest ever. Wow. Now that I didn't, now that I didn't know what year that was, the, 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 the 89. No, team? that was, that was 94 and 95 that the Stallions played oh, okay. in Baltimore. Okay, the you know, the Stallions. That's right. When he, yeah, because yeah. uh, the the one year that the, the the Stallions won with him and Mike Pringle, you know, that was that was an amazing team. Right. You know, and we heard a little bit about that, you know, down here in Louisiana. Though we didn't, you know, we had the Pirates, but you know, the Pirates were the Pirates. But uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, I mean that 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 experiment in you know having. American-based teams in the CFL, yeah. you know, kind of lended itself to try to grow the popularity of the sport. And it did for a while, especially here in Louisiana, you know, mm-hmm. with the Pirates. And, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was some interesting times, you know, back in the mid-90s. Because I was in college back then, and um, I wanted to try to get to a game out there, but I just couldn't make it. You know, but I wish I would have, though, really. <laughs> I was going to ask you, since we're both, you know, Southern guys that had Southern CFL teams, if you, you know, were able to be a fan or not. I was, I was working for a newspaper at the time, so I actually got to cover their, their first game and sort of, you know, after that I was stuck covering racing and other sports and stuff, but I still remained a fan. And I just thought, you know, maybe uh, the American experiment would – you know, would work out much better than it obviously did. So, yeah, that's interesting to know that you were in college when the Shreveport Pirates were, were around and unfortunately didn't have too long to cheer for them, just kind of like the Barracudas. We were we were one and done here in Birmingham. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, they're playing, you know, in Shreveport and, it, I mean, they, they had to play all their games at night, you know, because there's nowhere in the world you could play – a CFL, you play a football game at Independence Stadium in Shreveport with all of those aluminum metal benches reflecting the sun and playing <laughs> on artificial turf. And it was just, a, and then the, the, the whole stadium setup was not conducive to the Canadian game because it just, they had to kind of like make accommodations to make that work. And it was just a big mess in Shreveport, you know, was, from what I was, remember. How was the field? Was it regulation size, or did they? Have it was. To- it was a, a regulation size, but what they had to do was they had to take out some of the stands on on the end zone to have to fit the end zone, the Canadian oh, end zone. Okay. So they had to take some seats out to make that work. Yeah. Well, the reason why I ask, the reason why well, the reason why I ask is when you know doing my you know I've done research on the CFL you know when they were in the U.S. But you see very few pictures of how what the stadiums were like other than Memphis. Right. Because Memphis was the, you know, was the glaring example of, you know, America doesn't have the fields for a Canadian game. You know, but the, the thing is that in the end zones at Independent Stadium, for what I, what I remember back then is that they were temporary. 
Okay. Even when they had the independence bowl, there was just, there were temporary stands in each end zone, so they could just move them back. Oh, you know, okay, gotcha. you know, it just the, the the permanent parts of Independence Stadium was on the sidelines, which okay. was and they had to kind of really squeeze them in. You know, the sidelines were so narrow. You know, at Independence Stadium, and um, you know, it was it was a it was a mess. But I wish I would have had the chance to attend a Pirates game. You know. You know when the pirates are in Shreveport. Well, yeah. when we had Matt Dunnigan on a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about you know what he had hoped is that Birmingham would have the vast majority of their games on Thursday because then you weren't competing with high school football, college football, or the NFL. But then the owner of the Barracudas thought it would be best to play games on Sunday because he thought, well, you know, NFL fans would still rather watch their local team, but obviously. That was no, a huge was miscalculation. I, mean, I think he would have had a better chance doing it on Thursday nights because of just exactly Absolutely. what they were talking about. You know, like you're going in Alabama, you're going to compete against high school football. No, Bam and Auburn, forget it. In the NFL on Sunday, I don't know. But you know, you know, with Birmingham being something of a, of a local team, maybe you know, maybe it could have worked on Sunday, but they tried it and didn't work. <laughs> Yeah, and that you know that's what I hoped as as a you know someone trying to separate myself from a sports writer as a fan. Yeah, because I love the CFL. I would watch it on Sunday, but then I could see how rank and file people, members of my family, like my dad, you know, he said, "Well, CFL is fine, but I just can't get used to the three downs." So you know, he was always going to if it came down to an American football game against the CFL game. He was going to choose the American game ten times yeah. out of ten, and that's a and that's a lot in the South. That's a lot right. in the South when you see that. Yeah, which you know, just talking about that, it's if, if anybody's watched the games the last two weeks, I don't know who who can't who wouldn't love Canadian football. This week, man, some of the games weren't the greatest, but the week before that opening weekend, it's like, you know what, you know, at least for me, when I was really you know, first really started watching it, after about I don't know. But the second set of possessions, I completely forgot about it only being three downs. It was football. Yeah. Well, exactly. I, I'm a Hamilton Tiger Cats fan, so I can tell you if I just started watching the CFL this year, I'd be having a problem right now. A little bit. Because <laughs> the, the Tiger Cats have not been fun to watch. No. You got to score more. You got to average more than seven points a game to win. Well, you know, wow. I have not followed and just kind of digressing a little bit about this weekend. I. This morning I woke up and I was reading stuff from about the Elks on the Elks fan pages. The Elks fans are not happy at all, at wow. all. And uh, yeah, <laughs> so anyway, now, speaking, go ahead. Now speaking of the Elks, you yeah. know, we having this discussion about the CFL and blacks in the Canadian Football League, and when you talk about the Elks, says. One person that you have to discuss, of course, and that is Mr. Warren Moon. It's yeah, that's that's where you that it starts and ends with. Well, you know, in terms of the, he is right there at top of that discussion pyramid. I mean, five consecutive Great Cup titles. I yep. mean, come on. Um, he was the first quarterback to throw for over five thousand yards. You know, and in nineteen eighty three, he passed for 5,600 5, yards. Put that in perspective, 5,600 yards passing in a season. Right. Some people don't do that in a career, much less one year. 
And it was through, you know, Hugh Campbell and, and the offense and, you know, and, and Warren Moon was the first player, first star of the Canadian Football League that I really remember being an eight, nine-year-old. First of all, being from the South, of course, we had, they had Doug Williams at Tampa Bay, right. and then you had Warren Moon in, um, in Canada along with Condrick Holloway, um, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Oh, good. Uh, I love Con- Condrick Holloway is my favorite CFL player of all time. And um, Condrick, I mean, Warren Moon was the first one that I remember because like when, when I first started watching it, when I was in my younger, younger years, eight, nine, 10 years old, when he used to come on ESPN every week, you know, Edmonton would be playing and he'd be, I mean, first of all, seeing a black quarterback, like, this is different, you know, and it was, and he was so much fun to watch. First of all, I don't ever remember Warren Moon ever throwing like a ball that had any little, any bit of a wobble in it at all. Everything was just a perfect spiral. And especially with the ball, with the stripes on the ball, it just looked so precise, you know, and it was, he was just a talent. Even back when he was at Washington, I remember watching an old Rose Bowl game where he was in. Um, and he just, I mean, when he threw the ball, the ball looked like it blinked in the air because of the, the spiral was just so tight and it was always on target. And it was just so, he was just so much fun to watch, you know, even later years when, with the Oilers, you know, and then with, you know, with me living in South Louisiana, just right up the street from Houston, about an hour and a half away from Houston, we got a lot of Oilers games. And he was just so much fun to watch, with, you know, but the success that he had in Canada is just unsurpassed by anybody. And what he, he's one of the greatest, if not the greatest quarterback to play in the, ever in the CFL. Yeah. Yeah. He and, was, he was during there during the time when, you know, if you got the paper the next morning, you knew that he had led Edmonton to a win regardless of who they played. I mean, it, he, he just, but then again, I mean, nobody really, really, nobody really was on Edmonton's level during that time. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, totally class by themselves. Yeah. And um, yeah. When, what, five was it? I, I'm sorry. It's early morning. I've only had one cup of coffee. Five championships, right? Yeah. In a row. Five, five and, straight. Five consecutive yeah. championships. And and this is what frustrates me with people in the United States who look at the Canadian football like, well, it's CFL. Hey, do you know how hard it is to win five championships in a row in any league? Any league, right. Yes. And, you know, it's just a shame he never got to the Super Bowl here. I think, you know, I can. it would have been awesome to see the Oilers, number one, go to a Super Bowl. That would have probably kept him in Houston. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that would have been a nice, that would have been a, a nice bow to put on, you know, to wrap up his career to have both the Grey Cup championship and a, a Super Bowl championship. Even just to get to the Super Bowl would be would have been an accomplishment in itself. But to be able to see somebody see somebody from the Canadian League with all the success that he had come down here and have equal success. And he came close. Yeah, he came, he came close. I mean, unfortunately he ran into the Buffalo Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs, you know, when they had Joe Montana <laughs> yeah. and, and the, the, the infamous comeback, right? Against, you know, losing to the Bills. Um, but, you know, when you talk about, but can you imagine what the discussion would be had he won a Super Bowl? Now put this into perspective. Had Warren Moon won a Super Bowl, 
Will we be considered hey, talking? Will we talk about Warren Moon as possibly the greatest quarterback in football history? Well, I it bothers me that we that he's not talked about as one of the greatest quarterbacks in football history because he would have accomplished something that no one else had ever done. Right. You know, he won a Rose Bowl. He won five consecutive Grey Cups and add a Super Bowl to that. Yeah. We would be talking about him as one of the greatest. I mean, we, we, he is one of the greatest quarterbacks ever in the history of football, but his stature would be so much higher had he right. won a Super Bowl. I mean, right. we would be comparing, I mean, and you talk about all the yards he passed for in his career. If you total up all of the yards that he passed in the CFL and the NFL with the Warriors in the running shoe, is, is, is astronomical. It really is. And he played primarily in the running shoe his whole career in Houston. Uh, and then he went over to other places, went to Seattle, went to Minnesota, and they were also passing teams. So his they catered the offense towards him, and it just let you know his talent, his overall leadership skills and overall talent of throwing the football, as we say down here, down here in the South, his ability to, to, to spin it is just amazing. Yeah. And, you know, on that subject, talking about the great quarterbacks up there, do you know, you have any insight as to why Damon Allen, I mean, he did, he had a Hall of Fame career in Canada. Why he never came down to the States for, I mean, you know, Marcus Allen's brother. Yeah. How come he never came to the States? Do you know? I, you know, that, that, that's a, that's a very good question. I think that his, I think what it might have been was that with when we talk about Damon Allen, I think his thing was that he didn't want to play in the shadow of his brother. Okay. You know, you know, yeah, he is Marcus Allen's younger brother. Marcus Allen, uh, Super Bowl MVP, Hall of Fame running back for the Raiders and Chiefs. He probably would have been, no matter what he did here in the States, he would have been probably regarded as always been, well, he's Marcus Allen's little brother. And I think that he wanted an, his an identity all his own in Canada. I mean, you look at his career four. Yeah, I'm looking at the numbers right now. You They're know, off the charts. Break up championships, 19, uh, 1987 and 1993 and 2004, Great Cup Most Valuable Player. Okay, he was a uh, league MVP in 05. Who, and he was the oldest, well, second oldest player to win a league most valuable player next to Gordy Howell. And he right. was 42 wow. when he was the league MVP. Yeah, I mean, his longevity is, I mean, he played, uh, you just look at the length he played. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the amount of games and the amount of years that he played, and he played for several different teams. He played for Edmonton twice. He played for right. Ottawa, uh, Hamilton, British Columbia, Toronto. He played for a lot of different teams. You know, you know he almost played for the entire league. But yeah. his longevity was something to speak of. And I think that the reason why he didn't come to the States, because he definitely had the talent, definitely had the talent, both running and throwing. Um, he would have been always considered Marcus Allen's brother. And I think that he just wanted that identity all his own and didn't want to be in the shadow of his brother, which I can understand, you know, and then you have a very rabid following in Canada with all the success and the longevity that you played up in Canada. You know, I don't blame him one bit. I, I probably would have done the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And too, I mean, there's also the issue that, you know, certainly the money's not like it is in the NFL, but you could, you know, especially if you were that good, 
you can make a very comfortable living. You know, mm-hmm. there's also marketing deals, advertising, right. everything else. And if you invest well, you're absolutely fine. But that yeah. that's what amazes me is just just the longevity. And if you look at a lot of the superstars of the CFL over the years, especially when they play for a, a you know pretty good amount of time, they play for a lot of different teams. That's why it's always fun when I look at somebody like Reed or Trawick who spent their entire career, you know, with one team. That's just that's incredibly rare. Yeah. Yeah, well, that is rare. It's rare nowadays in any sport, but even in is. Canada with so few teams, you know, that you see a lot of these superstar players go to different teams. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm not concretely sure about this. This is a, just a theory that I may have, is that the reason why that was was because it may be that going to greener patches other places or maybe that the, the, that the, the contracts that they want to pay these players – they just didn't have the money for it, but another team right. did or whatever. So that might have had to that might figure into a lot of these really big time stars moving on to different teams and different, you know, different teams and everything. So yeah. I think that's probably one of not I'm not concretely sure on that, but that's just a theory. Well, could it right. be too? And I I'm just thinking, you know, we're talking about this. Could it be a matter, a question of is it better to be a small fish in a big pond or a big fish in a small pond? And I'll use the example of Milt Stiegel. Yes. Milt yes. Stiegel, I mean, probably could play today if, if, if he wanted to. But mm-hmm. he's an institution up in Winnipeg. Right. You know, Milt Stiegel, known as, you know, I consider him and a lot of people as well, the Jerry Rice of the CFL. Yeah. You know, he, I mean, he was smooth like Jerry Rice. He, I mean, the body build is very similar. Yeah. You know, their bodybuilder is extremely similar, but uh, Nils Stegel, CFL most valuable, you know, CFL MVP in 02, you know, had 15,153 yards receiving in his career with Winnipeg. And, um, you know, just an unbelievable, smooth receiver. He started off his career in the NFL with the Bengals, and he only played like there for one year, I believe, and then came over to Canada and then went played, you know, started off. You know, and went to Winnipeg and then set the league on fire with his receiving, you know, and he was a lot like Jerry Rice. Watching him, and if you didn't realize that was no Stiegel, you would think that was Jerry Rice because they're the same style, same body type, same, you know, same ability, everything. And he was just so smooth with those Winnipeg teams. And they both got, you know, in addition to that is when those guys are on TV, you stop and listen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have the they have yeah. a charisma about them that yeah. was just so so you know that was just so impressive, you know. Right. And then you could just listen to them all day long, and then you'd like, and everything they say, they could be, you could think, you could take that to the bank pretty right. much because they're both very, very, you know, very smart guys. And you know, in you know, in Jerry Rice being from a historical black college and university, um, he, you know, that was <laughs> uh, that's something cool right there, you know. Yeah. Well, talking about personalities and charisma, let's talk about Cookie Gilchrist. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> Cookie Gilchrist. Uh, one of my favorite stories about Cookie Gilchrist was that he was, when he was in Buffalo, he, he played in the NFL the, the end of his career in Buffalo and Denver and Miami. Which is essentially like playing in Canada because you're right there. Right, the right. This is doing the AFL. You yeah. Know? This is doing the days of the AFL. Yeah. And um, Cookie drove a pink Cadillac in Buffalo, you know, and on the front of his car, in the front of this big, first of all, it was a pink Cadillac in Buffalo. So of course you're going to know who it is, but on the front bumper, 
he had on there written, looky, looky, here comes cookie on the front of the Cadillac, <laughs> which is kind of like, which is basically his personality, you know, right. but he was also very outspoken, you know, as far as like race and discrimination, you know, even in Canada, we talked about earlier about how welcoming it was, but it was also important to mention that you can't, you know, take a racism out of the world, like taking right. water out right. of the ocean, you right. know. It was always there, you know, but he's the only man, for what I understand, the only man ever to refuse induction into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame for that reason. Hmm. And he was very adamant. He didn't want, because he could, I mean, you look at his stats, you know, 4,000, close to 5,000 yards rushing. He was a 1957 Great Cup MVP for Hamilton. Um, just a power runner. If you had to compare him to somebody today, the first person I think of is Derrick Henry. You know, because he was a big, yeah. strong, but he was he was very athletic for his size. You know, if you look at pictures of him, he's trying to tackle him like trying to tackle an apartment building. I right. mean, he was just <laughs> massive, but he was he, but he had the, the speed to outrun DBs, which was impressive as well. Would it, would it be would it be fair? And he was kind of blackballed out of the AFL because yeah. of his stance on racism and, and kind of blackballed, you know, and he just basically said, look, I, yeah, I, I'm flattered by the invitation, but I'm not going into the CFL Hall of Fame because yeah. of his stance on racism and racism in the league that he encountered, you know, in the CFL and of course in the, in the AFL and it was in one of the major social stories of the 60s that a lot of people don't talk about was he led the boycott of the 1964 AFL All-Star game in New Orleans. Right. You know, that a lot of people don't know about. You know, that, that was moved to Houston, wasn't it? Because of that reason. Yeah. You know, like all of the black players that was on the AFL All-Star teams, you know, like guys like Earl Faison, Ernie Ladd, you know, uh Cookie Gilchrist, Abner Haynes, all those guys refused to play in the AFL All-Star game, which was in New Orleans, and New Orleans was trying to get a team in the AFL and that, you know, and that was kind of like of a black mark against the city of New Orleans. And so they ended up having to move the AFL cha- uh, all-star game to Houston, like at the last minute, you know, and because, because the black players organized, you know, organized a walkout and that walkout was led by Cookie Gilchrist. Yeah. And he ended his, he ended his career in Miami, right? Yeah, he played last game in in, in, in Miami, um, which is the one of the funniest things I'd ever seen because he was wearing because he wore number two when he played in the. Can you imagine a guy in like six one two thirty two thirty five in the sixties wearing the number two carrying the ball? That's just a <laughs> weird look for me. He may be the only the last. I could be wrong. But he may be the last skill position player to wear a single digit number in pro football. Really? I may really? be wrong, but it just seemed like that would be, you know, that might be the case. The last skill position player to wear a single digit number in, in pro football in America, in, in the States. Okay. Yeah. And, and really thought about that. I know on that adult, I mean, he was right at the end of his career. So I know. And didn't he get, did he get traded to Denver at that or was Miami his last stop? Miami, I think Miami was the last team because they came into the AFL in 66. Okay. You know, and he had been with Buffalo. And I think he followed Lou Saban to Denver 
when wow. the Bills, when he left, when you know, when when Lou Saban left the Bills to go to Denver, I think Cookie right. followed him okay. to Denver. Okay. You know, well, and then he ended his career in, you know, or maybe the other way around. I'm not exactly sure on how that turned out, but you know, I do remember Cookie playing for Denver, and I do remember him playing for the Dolphins, wearing number two in that aqua and blue, in that aqua and orange. <laughs> I do remember that. Um, and in terms of staying on running back theme, so one of the greatest names in Canadian football, if you were to mention anybody down here, the name Pinball Clemens. Pinball Clemens, yep. People would look at you going, who's Pinball Clemens? But up in Canada, he can't walk the street. I mean, he can't, you know, it, when he walks the streets, no matter where he's at in Canada, people are getting their pictures taken with pinball. He's and an the reason why that is, he is. It has more to do, I think it has more, a lot to do with, or as much to do with his playing career as his personality. Right. And everything he has contributed up there. He is like, you know, he is an institution in Canada. And in Toronto, he has done it all. I mean, in terms, you'd look at somebody who truly is a CFL lifer, who yes. is your, for lack of a better term, your Swiss Army knife. Right. Pinball Clemens has done it all. And I don't know off the top of my head, has he ever played the quarterback position? Because it wouldn't surprise me if he stepped in, much like Walter Payton did on a couple snaps, to cover down on the uh, – to, to pinch hit at the, at the QB position. He probably, I mean, he probably, I don't think he played quarterback. He might have did it like in a pinch maybe once or, tw once or twice in a game. But uh, Pinball Clemens, you said, I mean, he was a player, coach, executive, all for Toronto. Um, he was, he, you're right, he's an institution. He's a, what do you call a lifer? I mean, there, there are guys who've been in leagues and, and everything for a lot of years. But Pinball Clemens was one of those men that, he was with the, I mean, and, and he was with Toronto pretty much his whole career, right. you know, if you really think about it, you know, he was such a, I mean, and just, he had such of an electric personality. Um, I can remember when I was, you know, when I first got back into the CFL back in the nineties and two thousands, you know, he was all over the place, you know, and, and not only just playing, but he just conversed with the fans and just had this, just electric personality. You know, he has um, six Ray Cups in his career. Yeah. You know, he won six Ray Cup titles, uh, 25,000 all-purpose yards, both running, receiving, punt and kick returns. I mean, he this guy did it all, you know, and he wasn't that big. I mean, he was just rather – he was sort of like Barry Sanders in a way. That's right. why they and, called him Pinball. Yeah, I was just going to say, that's, that's the nickname. Unbelievable. That's, he would bounce back. off people. You know, he had just unbelievable balance. He just bounce off people, you know, and just maintain balance and just keep on going. He was just an electric talent. And I think that had he came to the had, – had he played in the NFL, you know, he would have been just an electric personality and he would – and everybody would have known who he was, you right. know. But he just never had that opportunity to play in the NFL, mostly because of his slight stature, which I think is unfair. Yeah, and I agree with you. And I think, too, I think some of the reason why you don't see people, you know, especially the stars coming down from the CFL down to the States is, like, going back to that little fit, that, that fish analogy that I gave, Henry Burris is a case in point, who is now here coaching with the Bears. But Henry, Bear, Henry Burris played, had a cup of coffee with the Bears. And yeah. I remember hearing the name, and then it went away. And then, you know... In the 2000s, 
wait a minute, that name sounds familiar. And then I did some digging. Did not realize how big of a star, you know, Hank is up in Canada. And so it was fun to, to be able to, like, you know, watching a Bears game or actually watching a CF, you know, talking talking Bears stuff. And then, like, hey, remember Henry Bruce? Yeah, barely. Who's that? I go, no, he's a big star in Canada. Really? And so it's been fun <laughs> to watch. It was fun to watch him end his career the way it, the way he did, basically leading an expansion team to a, to a title. That's right. An expansion team with That's a losing right. record, too. Yeah. Didn't, didn't they have a – yeah. Yeah, I got. I don't off the top of my head remember, but yeah, title's a title. <laughs> wow, you know another guy, and, and um, y'all mentioned him earlier, and he was the subject of a documentary a few years ago. Conrad Holloway, you know, thank you. Yeah, talked about him being, being his favorite player of all, you know, one of his favorite CFL players, you know, from and. and the documentary, The Color Orange, the Conrad Holloway story, I watched that on, one time and I was like, I, I, before I watched it, I was like, I know the name, but I'm not familiar with the name. You know, I knew he was a quarterback at Tennessee. I knew that and, and everything else, but I never knew his career in Canada. And I vaguely remember the name from my childhood, but watching him play, I was like, wow, this guy is something else. You know, and again, one of the really hidden gems in the, in the history of the Canadian Football League that no one really knows too much about here in the States. And, um, you know, Conrad Holloway was a two-time Great Cup champion in Toronto with the Argos, you know, and he had that famous game between them and Edmonton where both of them threw for like a billion yards, you know, <laughs> and him and Moon threw for like a thousand yards each maybe, I guess. But it was just, just you know, uh, Conrad Holloway was another hidden gem that was in Canada and became a, a hero to a lot of Canadians over the years. I just loved everything about his game. I mean, you know, he, he was a great passer. He was a great runner. I mean, he could think on his feet and make the right decisions. And he was just – but it was all in such an exciting package. And the thing is, I, I think the reason I was such a big fan is, you know, he, he prepped in the state of Alabama. He was from Huntsville, Alabama. Right. So I kind of knew who he was before he even went to college. You follow him in college where he's a great player, and then he goes to CFL and he's a great player. And he's just one of those guys that just from the standpoint of being a fan, it was always just an absolute pleasure and honor to watch him play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and, you know, he was, you know, just one of those – and he's a great person. I think he's a uh, – really is. You know, I think he's still with the University of Tennessee as a assistant athletic director there. And, you know, he was just, you know, did a lot of things for the University of Tennessee. Um, just just an outstanding person, but, he, but even more, just an outstanding football player, you know, for Toronto. Um, there was another guy, uh, Chuck Ely. Yeah, that's what I was going to mention. A great name, yeah. The stone thrower. Yeah, he's the first quarterback to win a great, first black quarterback to win a great cup with Hamilton in 1972 over Saskatchewan. Um, you know, I heard a lot about him. Uh, he was, you know, just a really, another great quarterback from the University of Toledo. Um, just another great quarterback. His career really didn't last too, too long, but he was still got that great cup title in his belt. So that's a plus for him. And he came from a really small college too, you think? Yeah, Toledo, Toledo. Right? 
You know, so I mean, the Rockets isn't isn't really known as a as a football hotbed, you know, in the MAC. But uh, you know, but coming from Toledo in that time, yeah, and going up to Canada and having the success that he had, you know, people still speak very highly of Chuck Ely in uh, in Hamilton. Right. And have you seen the uh, documentary, uh, the the Canadian documentary engraved on a nation? And there's a whole uh, episode. I have not, but that's on my that's on my list to watch because I I started doing this again. I went down the rabbit hole doing this, and I'm like I'm running out of time, but I need to watch this, you know. So Back? that's like on my list to watch. Right. Well, you know, I the one thing that I always kind of get on the CFL about is they don't have their version of NFL films. But in the last, you know, say in the last ten years, the CF TSN has tried their best to kind of step into that breach. And, mm-hmm. and give CFL fans something NFL films like. And they did an right. eight-part series on Engraved on a Nation. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Hey, there were bootleg copies on YouTube, and I grabbed every one of them because I knew they weren't <laughs> going to stay up long. And the one with him was was my favorite. And oh, wow. I'll try to find it for you and, and try to try to get you a copy of it. because oh, I really it, appreciate that. I, it's it's buried here as, as we're sitting. I've got a ton of hard drives here full of football games and documentaries. Of, at some point, I got a catalog. You know, once I retire, I'll probably have more time to catalog and sort through. But it, of all the of all the, the eight part series, it, that one was my favorite because it was the most to me. It was the most inspiring to see what he overcame. You know, back in the seventies. I mean, back in the early seventies in the NFL. I mean, there was there was there was the unwritten rule, right? I mean, we right. there were there were there were a few guys who came. James Harris, a good example. They came. They were able to play in the NFL, but there was that that there. But up in Canada, no, no. I mean, there was no unwritten rule. I mean, you you think about that unwritten rule, quote unquote. Um, you think of you think of Marlon Briscoe, right? You know, Marlon the Magician played in Denver. He was the first black quarterback to start on a regular basis, and he had to do it in the AFL, you know, and then over time, they converted him to a receiver. But up until a few years ago, he had the most touchdown passes by a Broncos rookie. Even he had more touchdown passes as a rookie than John Elway did. Really? And... And he was he was just so amazing, and he only and he only played like maybe half, maybe three quarters of his rookie year. He played quarterback, and he held the record for most touchdown passes by a Broncos rookie, you know, which lasted for close to thirty years, you know, which a lot of people don't realize. But you know, but he didn't, and he didn't work out as a quarterback because they moved, they traded him, to, I think, to Buffalo right after, and they converted him to a receiver, and he never played quarterback again. Um, but if you watch film of Marlon Briscoe, you know, he was a lot like a Kyler Murray in the 60s. You know, forget about Tracy Ham. He was, you know, of the, in the 60s for the AFL team, and he was elusive. He was short, but he had unbelievable accuracy. But he was the most athletic. He was a fan favorite in Denver. You know, and had he stayed in Denver and stayed at quarterback, you know, what would have what would the Broncos franchise turned out with him and Floyd Little? Can you imagine that? Holy smoke! <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, kind of on that theme, JC um, Watts is a person that you know I saw 
back when I was a kid play. And then it was like he kind of disappeared on us. Right. What happened? I mean, he was he was up in Canada, but nobody, you know, we remember him for what he did in, in, in government. But yeah. tell, us, tell us about Oklahoma. his career in Canada. You know, I mean, you know, J.C. Watts, you know, I remember watching him as a kid at the University of Oklahoma running the wishbone under Barry Switzer, you know, and he goes to Canada. And no one thought that he could throw. Okay, but when he went up to Canada, he proved that, that this is Duke throw, you know, but it was like, he's like another one of those hidden gems that was in Canada, was a big star, came back to the United States and people were like, okay, what happened to him? I remember JC Watts at Oklahoma, yeah. you know, and now he's in, now he's a Senator or, you know, now he's in Congress. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he still may be in Congress. I'm not I sure. I don't know. Let me take a you look know. here. But um, you know, J.C. Watts was one of the, another one of those hidden gems in the CFL that American fans don't really know and don't really totally appreciate what he did up there north of the border. You always had to feel for wishbone quarterbacks, though, regardless of their talent level. Like you said, you know, even if you're a really good passer. If you're a wishbone quarterback in college back in the 70s, you might throw two passes a game. You know, I mean, right. it just. I mean, with that, I mean, with Barry Switzer's offense, you know, you, I mean, if you throw th- two passes in a game, that was like almost a career high. Um, right. But they were just so effective with it. Not that they didn't like to run, didn't like to throw it. They just didn't have to, you know. And, you know, wishbone quarterbacks have always had this stigma where they can't throw, they always run, you know, and they're getting beat up and all of this other stuff. And you're talking about, you know, me, I ran a wishbone when I was in high in, in Peewee. So I knew what they, you know, ran the wishbone as a quarterback. And I know the beating that they took firsthand, right. you know, which only lasted like two games, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, getting, getting back to that, because you mentioned Tyler Murray. And when Tyler Murray first came into the NFL – my first thought was, man, he'd be the perfect CFL quarterback. He would because, be. And it's, it's interesting to see now, and for those who watch the CFL, we can now see in the NFL a lot of the CFL because the NFL right. was I mean, turned NFL, into a CFL game. Yeah, this, you know, that's what a lot of people you know, talk about. Well, it's just a spread offense. and that's a, They've been running the spread in the CFL since the 1960s, 70s. Yeah. You know, they've been running that just without the shotgun. Right. Well, and the run and shoot was developed up in Canada. I mean, That's really, right. was perfected right. up there. You know, you're talking yeah, about um, Conrad Holloway, right? Yeah, you know, Mouse Davis and, and and that whole team that won the the Grey Cup in the early '80s was, you know, so people talk about, you know, oh, it's revolutionary. I'm like, eh, no, it's been around a while. Yeah, it's been around. It's just been up in Canada. I mean, you know, they, they're no one. And, and that's one thing about the Canadian league that I've learned is that, yeah. You have so many great players and so many great games and so many guys that could have come to the United States and played in that and played in the NFL that would have been household names. You know, they would have been household names just for some of the things that they've done. And, you know, and it was a shame that a lot of these black players that we talked about never really had as much of an opportunity that they did here in the United States that they did in Canada. Yeah. And, they, and they, once they got the opportunity to play their game, right. that was what, you know, and that set them apart from a lot of the other players. And they became household names in Canada and heroes to a whole nation. Yeah. And, you know, 
and and on that too, there's that there's there there's the playing aspect, but there's also another aspect of what the CFL has excelled in, and that is in the front office. Right. And I'm going to use Jeff. I'm going to use the Jeffrey Orich. Yes. Yeah. Tell us Yo, about for, Jeffrey and, and his term and his time as a CFL commissioner. First African American named as commissioner of a league, any league in North America. He was commissioner, and he's his. I mean, being commissioner, he wasn't commissioner too too long. Maybe like a couple of years, but still impressive. He yeah, still. I mean, he's just an impressive man, you know. And um, you know, and another thing is that. You know, you talk about leadership positions, Willie Wood. Let's talk about him. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know what that was actually. I've got my list out of guys that we have haven't talked about, and Willie Wood's right there. You know, you he know, was Willie a Wood. head coach of the Philadelphia Bell in 1975 before he came to the Argos as head coach in '80. So he he kind of broke a couple of barriers there. That's right. That's right. He was, you know, first of all, he was a Hall of Fame defensive back with the Packers, you know, under Lombardi. And he brought that leadership to the, the World Football League in the mid-70s and in, in the CFL in the night in 1980 with the Argos. And what he was what seven years before Art Shell became head coach right. of the Raiders, the first black coach in the National Football League. He had beat, you know, Willie Wood had beat Art Shell by seven years. So that gives you a prime example of the forward thinking you know, that the Canadian Football League had as far as looking upon minorities in leadership positions. And Willie Wood is a perfect example. You know, he was, you know, he had, he learned a lot under the, under Lombardi, you know, the Lombardi system, so to speak. And he brought that up to Canada and had success. Yeah. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, we are approaching the end here and, uh, this has been fun. This has been great. This, this has been awesome. And, Dan, I apologize. We didn't get to your to do this before, you know, you know, before we did until now. And so my apologies for not having you come on sooner. Oh man, look, as long as you have me on, man, I'm I'm, I'm enjoying myself. I, I had a lot of fun today doing talking with y'all, talking CFL, you know, and uh, hey, it's football season, man. And um, hey, I'm 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 down with whatever, bro. And I really appreciate y'all having me on. I really do. Well, we'll definitely have you on again, and. Um, Hey, before we end here, let everybody know where they can find you. They know um, Twitter, social media, uh, the internet, what have you. Okay, um, I am the host of Historically Speaking Sports podcast right here on the Sports History Network. Um, you could also check me out on Twitter at historically sp2. Um, that's my Twitter handle. And um, if you need to get in touch with me in any way, you can contact me on by email historically.sports. I mean, I'm sorry, historically.speaking.sports.com. Uh, I mean, at gmail.com. And um, I really enjoyed having, you know, being on with you guys. And uh, whenever y'all need me back to talk more CFL or anything else, you know, feel free, you know, you know, just contact a brother, hook a brother up, will you? Oh, most really definitely, definitely will. Most definitely. Hey, and real quick. I had a lot of fun, though, man. This was so much fun, I tell you. Before we let you go, what, what do you got coming up? What shows you got coming up? Have you, well, are you doing the Carlin Globetrotters like I asked you? Well, I'm, I haven't done that yet. I might do that when basketball season starts coming around again. Okay. Um, but right now, I'm in the process of putting together my 
it's like I, I don't know. If, I don't know if you want to call it a mini series, but it's going to be a series of shows that deals specifically with the with the NFL. And the one that I have coming up within a few days is we recently had three guys from historical black colleges and universities um, be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And my upcoming show, my main event, will talk about all of the players that's in Canton that came from historical black colleges and universities. Okay, that's great, awesome. And um, also, I got also coming up in a couple of weeks. I had put together last year. I did this in a blog, but I'm gonna put together a show totally around this. Okay, and it's gonna be just a special show. I had put together. If each franchise put together a fantasy team, every NFL franchise's all-time fantasy team, two quarterbacks, two running backs, three receivers, like a fantasy football league, but with each NFL franchise, what would that look like? Oh, man, that's going to be Greg's porn right there. I can oh, tell yeah, you. yeah. I was just going to say, that's what simulation <laughs> football is all about. You Better know, like – you know, who would be who would be the like, for example, who would be the two running backs for, say, the Titans? You right. know, would it be Derrick Henry? Would it be Eddie George? Would it be Earl Campbell? Would it be Charlie Henry? I mean, who would it be? You know, who would be the two running backs? Yeah. Who would be the quarterbacks for the Pittsburgh Steelers? Yeah. If this was fantasy. Would you take Roethlisberger or would you take Bradshaw? Exactly. You know, it's 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 yeah, I'm dealing with that actually quandary right now. I've got the Arizona Cardinals in one sim league. So we've taken the current Cardinals and we're going to match them together with some of the old timers. See, and that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm doing right here. Yeah. Well, we'll have to talk more offline about my simulation uh, football league stuff because uh, you'll love it. You'll love oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> you'll be able to ask. I, you know what? You will be able to answer the question of who was the greatest team ever. Sure. Dang. It's, you know. It's uh, and, and you'd be surprised at some of the answers too, as as I was one time when I realized the '67 Raiders were a lot better than '68 Colts. So, oh yeah, I, I could tell you that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but until you see it played out in front of you, it's like you know, you can conjecture and go like, no, the computer says this is how it's. You know, oh, okay. Then you look at the numbers and so anyway, I'm getting off track here. Hey guys, hey, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm sorry. Dana, thank you for joining us. And Scott, yeah, it was a bit of blast. Oh man, it really has. Tell. Thanks so much. We'll. Oh, hey, and one more thing before we get before we we end here. Um, we're in the fantasy football league together. I know Scott and I. We've got it. We've got the CFL Americans in our NFL fantasy football league. Oh, um, do we? Our I, sports. I didn't yes, this. we do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> show, show you how involved I am. <laughs> And um, hey, Dana, which team? Let everybody know because people are going to be able to kind of follow this once we get going. And I know I'm kind of the ringleader on getting this all set up. But for those who are looking at uh, want to follow us along, it's going to be a we've got we're going to have a link up at sportshistorynetwork.fans yeah. and we're working on it. Which team is yours? Mine is a team called the West End War Machine. That's the name of my team, and you see the, the the Charger logo on it, you know. But that's the name of my team. West End is a part of the town that I is is a, a section of New Iberia, Louisiana, where I grew up in, called West End, and I just like the name War Machine, so that's how I came up with it. And um, this would be my first time playing fantasy football in about twenty years. Really, really, yeah. 
It's, First time uh, in about 20 years I've played. Fan- you know? Yeah, well, it's going to be awesome playing this year because we're going to have Smack Talk going left and right. Now, see, now, 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 now I'm really hooked now because I'll <laughs> talk like the best. So. <laughs> and the best part about this is, uh, at least with the league, at least for me, is we're able to use auto draft, which yeah. to me kind of helps out because there's nothing worse than being in a fantasy football draft live and shouting out a name and hearing somebody say, he was taken two rounds ago. Oh, okay, back to the drawing board. And then you're being rushed to pick your next guy. And it's like, next thing you know, you grab a tight a tight end that, you know, maybe he's got one game in him and then you never hear from him again. So I always right, say the computer right. is always smarter than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember being in some of those live drafts back in the late 90s and 2000s. And they were just... By the time I got to my pick, I was already drunk. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, and that's the best thing about doing the fantasy football stuff. It's not so much about the playing. It's about the camaraderie, which, right, right, you know. Right. Is, we got a bunch of, bunch of great guys here at the Sports Central Network anyway. So, yeah. And, you know, um, it's, it's going to be fun. It's really going to be fun. Looking yeah. forward to it. Me too. Me too. All right, guys. Hey, well, with that said, hey, for speaking for Scott, myself, and Dana, Hey, thank you for joining us, and we will hope to see you again here. Hope to not see you again, but be speaking to you again very soon. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. 
Hello, football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and I'd like to invite you to the portal of positive football history, Pigskin Dispatch and pigskindispatch.com. We talk about everything that centers around the game of American football, expert discussions, the origins of the games, the great players, teams, and coaches, and more, and some great guests and insights from experts. We have new episodes three to four times a week, and you can find us on sportshistorynetwork.com, pigskindispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.